At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off. Pretty steady pre-market mixed as the S&P still on pace for the best month since January. A lot of corporate news out of Delta, Snowflake, Walgreens, Microsoft, and Durable Goods impressed with a beat core orders in line. Our roadmap begins with the market rallies detour and whether or not it is a sign of things to come. Also ahead, a rough start for shares of Walgreens. The company slashes its outlook. It's posting quarterly earnings that are below most analysts' estimates. That's the first time in three years it's done that, although the stock has been going down for a while. And a different story for Delta, the airline raising second quarter guidance. We're going to have the latest from the company's Investor Day. Let's begin with the markets, though, this morning. Dow is coming off its sixth straight day of losses, the longest streak since September of last year. A lot of discussion this morning, Mike, about even though the indices were lower yesterday, breadth actually was a little positive. Yeah, actually quite positive. So it was another one of these days. And it's been the case, I would say, on balance for the last week plus. Uh, And even really for the uh, for for the full month of of June at this point, the, the average stock has actually gained ground on the big mega cap names. A lot of it, I think, falls in the category of the overall indexes kind of pausing here. They're idling. Uh, We got overbought, got too hot. The big Nasdaq stocks did probably all they could do in the short term. Uh, And the big question was, is the market going to broaden out? It has made gestures in that direction. Um, the equal-weighted S&P is outperforming the NASDAQ 100, I think, on, in June at this point. So it actually has had a little bit of a comeback. Everything falls into the category to some degree of rebalancing. I don't th- mean just out of equities into, into bonds, but, you know, out of leaders into laggards and sort of looking for what hasn't participated. So um, kind of noncommittal. It feels very neutral in the sense that everyone felt underinvested. They chased raised equity exposure in terms of hedge funds, tactical investors. Uh, You're no longer seeing this massive net short in the S&P index futures, things like that. And now it's sort of a what's next moment uh, because we've uh, we've gotten pretty good gains year to date. We're between catalysts a little bit between the jobs report and Fed uh, Fed, uh, decisions. And so it feels like we have to sort of consolidate a little bit here. Uh, and, and that's what we've been doing. Yeah, there was some there was quite a bit of discussion yesterday, though, about, um, say, call activity yeah. tied to the S&P or semis, that there is this underlying sort of bed of FOMO, without a doubt, even though the uh, the overall indices are a bit in irons. It hasn't gone away. Uh, in fact, it came back really strong and you can see it run through the mor- yesterday's rally attempt in the morning in Tesla was really interesting because it was like, oh, they, you know, there was a downgrade. Let's buy into it. And then it didn't hold. NVIDIA and Tesla down kind of pretty significantly yesterday. So we'll see how it, uh, you know, how it shakes out from there. So I'm not suggesting everyone's kind of wait and see and neutral and just letting the market do what it does. It's more about these offsetting currents of, you know, profit taking in the stuff that's run and, and really sorting out where we are in terms of this potential soft landing that has really gotten embraced as a scenario at this point. And, um, 
you know, if it's a soft landing, you still got to kind of land. You know, so things are going to slow around the edges. The question is, what's, what have we priced in already? We'll see. I mean, Credit Suisse out today looking at Treasury futures, suggesting that an uninversion of the curve, David, may not come until 2026, which would basically put a recession three years from now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, we're going to stay higher for longer, I guess, continues to be the yeah. question. Yeah, I mean, right? he's essentially just looking at what the Treasury futures curve right now yes. shows yes. in terms of when you would uninvert. You, you know, I'm a little hesitant to assign a tremendous amount of foresight to every moment of, uh, of what, what the Treasury market thinks is going to happen. Uh, two years ago, the two-year Treasury yield was a tiny little fraction near zero. So, you know, I don't think that you want to necessarily say we got we, we know where this is headed. Uh, but it is, I, I think, still a pretty live debate as to whether the market uh, and the economy is, is kind of can ride the services strength for a while. Um, you still have credit conditions that are pretty accommodative. We haven't seen that crunch. And so I think you have and housing. It seems like it's coming back. 52 week high yesterday. Activity and the stocks. So it's, it's kind of this funny, uh, funny phase where, you know, you got stuff running pretty hot or coming off the lows. And the rest of it, we're just have this ongoing vigil of when is it going to break down? Um, Mike, you and I remarked this morning when we were uh, up on our little yeah. platform there about Seth Klarman being on uh, Squawk Box. Not a name you typically see on TV. Not often, yeah. I mean, I think both of us have had limited uh, exposure or exactly. at least talks with him through the years. I can remember one conversation, perhaps. So it was a rarity indeed to see Mr. Klarman, one of the uh, best-known value investors, most successful, uh, been out there for quite some time. Uh, Post his firm, does a lot of different things as well, restructuring. Remember how much Lehman debt they own, for right. example, yeah. in the bankruptcy. So they'll go all over the place. But Becky did ask him, you know, just to sort of put a number on so how much opportunity he sees in this market right now. Here's what he had to say. This environment feels like a four in terms of opportunity. With, with the um, 10 being the best? 10 being the best. It's nowhere near, um, uh, you know, nine or 10, but it's better than it was. You had such extended valuations, such little downside volatility, really for the last decade or more. And 2021 was sort of a blow off. 2022 began the correction. Now you're starting to recover from that correction, but I'm not sure whether that's going to continue or not. But the, the nature of opportunity that we see on a bottom-up basis is better than it was, but still not at, at peak. That, on the other hand, that means you should be waiting in. Mike, what's your take? Um, he's, first of all, very much deep value focused. So he really wants things to be cheap and seem like they're very deeply out of favor for him to really deploy capital in that direction. Although he has very big growth stock holdings like Alphabet. Right. It's like that. Yep. But um, four out of ten to me doesn't sound on the spectrum of Seth Klarman commentary to be that bearish. I think it just means like, look, you have to do your work to find the good opportunities. I love that he said it's been like a decade that you've had very elevated valuations and such little downside volatility. When we had a 35% crash, you know, three years ago, and you got 20%, 25% downside last year, it just shows you the threshold that he has for when things really seem like they're washed out. So um, I don't think he's, you know, uh, I don't think that's an that's a indefensible view because I do actually believe uh, it's tough to find statistically really cheap stuff that people hate that, um, that looks like it can it can survive, uh, you know, this next cycle uh, phase that we're in. Yeah. Uh, Carl, interesting to hear from Mr. Klarman for that roughly half hour or so they had him on the show, given how rare it is to see him make an appearance, let alone even just talk to him on the phone 
uh, through the many years he's been doing what he does. As Buffett, as Becky said, Buffett calls him one of the five, you know, only real money managers who actually can outperform the market over a long period of time yeah. that he was aware of. Uh, that's, a, that's interesting to see. Um, so in terms of corporate news, guys, we mentioned a few names, including Walgreens, down in the pre-market. Earnings coming in below estimates due to a lower consumer spend, drop in demand for COVID vaccines and testing. They slashed their full-year earnings guidance. And I think Bertha said, first time, Mike, in several years they've missed on EPS. Yeah, um, pretty sloppy all around. So a lot of the, you know, obviously the, the, the post-COVID effects running through there. It's, it's been interesting to me because Walgreens, as well as CVS, now their, their, their approach in healthcare services is not exactly the same in both cases. You have the you know, PBMs versus the you know, delivery of actual medical service uh, at, at Walgreens. But the stocks well, have been really CVS, cheap. CVS owns a uh, health insurer, Aetna. So. And, and they yeah. own Aetna, right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, they diverge to a certain extent. But both really screen out very cheap uh, in terms of, you know, free cash flow yields, all of that stuff. And I think it's just because the market doesn't have great confidence about the persistence of the profitability in the uh, in the healthcare delivery segments, that they're, they're both integrating big, you know, acquisitions. And, um, and, you know, the retail side of things has been, you know, in this hangover mode. Walgreens mentioned, you know, it wasn't a great cold and flu season for us. That's good news for us, bad news for, uh, you know, for, for the, uh, the retail side of the shop. Um, it's not as though the stock has been some great performer for any period no. of time. They may not have missed guidance for a number of years, but nobody yeah, seems go. to have been particularly excited by the performance of the company. Pacina still owns a lot of this thing. He's not the CEO any longer, but you know, you do wonder sort of, I don't know, I'm not sure what the future holds for, uh, for WBA at this point. But uh, I would point out, obviously, he was, you remember when he put this thing yeah, together. Yeah, sure. Uh, along with KKR way back, uh, some time back, and then stepped in, obviously, for a period of time as its CEO. Uh, Ross Brewer came over from Starbucks. It's been, what, a couple of years now, I guess, Carl, maybe even a year and a half yeah. or so. Yep. Uh, but it hasn't been the easiest road. No, not at all. Um, it's in the Dow still, which is an oddity. Yeah. <laughs> Walgreens boots, but it doesn't have much of an effect. Very low price stock at this point. Yes. So. Uh, in contrast, uh, we have Delta. Uh, investor day today. They do raise their Q2 guidance, all kinds of different metrics. Phil LeBeau caught up with Ed Bastian earlier this morning and joins us live from Atlanta. Hey, Phil. Hey, good morning, Carl. And right now in the building right next door, they are doing the Analyst Day presentations. Incredibly bullish comments from Delta CEO Ed Bastian. And here's basically what the company has said this morning. They did raise their guidance for the second quarter, both in terms of earnings per share as well as revenue, basically raising it by anywhere between 10 and 12 percent. For the full year, they expect $3 billion in free cash flow. Previous guidance was $2 billion. And they were talking, and they're still talking about in the analyst meeting, about incredibly strong demand beyond 2023, which raises the question, when does Delta get back to pre-pandemic highs in terms of the stock price and valuation? Here's what Ed Bastian had to say this morning on Squawk Box. Our stock was $6 a share in 2009. We got to $60 a share in 2019, right before the pandemic hit, a tenfold increase. So we've done it before. We're going to do it even better this time because of the strength of the, the balance sheet that we're focused on, the quality of the brand, the investments we're making digital. That's all going to make sure that we have a more durable outcome for the future. By the way, in the second quarter, Delta expects its 
uh, total revenue per seat mile, which is really the metric that people look at for the airlines. It was previously expected to be flat to negative 1% in the second quarter. Now expected to be flat to positive 1%. And they expect the Q2 earnings to be the best ever in the company's history. And that's why shares of Delta moving higher, still down about 25, 26% relative to its high pre-pandemic. As for the rest of the airline stocks, they're also moving higher, not only in sympathy or, or in conjunction with what we're hearing from Delta, but this is what we're going to be hearing from other airlines as well. Bullish outlooks over the next several weeks leading into their Q2 earnings reports. Guys, we typically look at the third quarter as the slow one for the airlines. I'm not sure that's going to be the case this year. Yeah, we're going into holiday weekend, Phil. Uh, a lot of people will be traveling. Gasoline's down double digits year on yep. year. I was struck by the the qualitative tone of, of Bastion's comments. I've, I've never seen a more constructive backdrop uh, in this industry. And then this number that they put on the, the amount of travel that could not be satisfied uh, during COVID, measuring in the hundreds of billions. Correct. And they believe that, you know, we, they've heard the term and, and they've used it in the past, pent up demand. People want to get out post pandemic. Ed Bastian now believes we're, we're, it's, it's beyond that. It is a structural um, demographic, if you will, with older travelers, whether they're baby boomers or people who are just under the baby boomer uh, generation who have so much money and so much desire to travel that this is now part of their plan permanently, that they will be doing more travel. And that's what Delta is expecting. And that's why when you listen to the presentations right now, guys, I was just in there listening to their CFO talking about how much they are expecting in terms of People saying we are going to continue traveling beyond 23, beyond 24. And yes, I know we've heard this in the past from airline executives that it's different this time around. You really do get a sense that they believe there is a structural shift in terms of how people look at air travel right now. Um, Phil, coming back to something we talked about endlessly during the pandemic, business travel. Anything there to yep. sort of share in terms of their continued view, of whether it will ever come back to what we saw, let's call it in 2019? I'm not, David, I'm not sure they expected ever to get back to pre-pandemic what we saw from traditional corporate travel, but they continue to see corporate travel budgets increasing. So it continues to improve, but whether or not it ever gets back to the exact level that we saw before then, before the pandemic, I I'm not sure that, that Delta or anybody else expects that. Uh, Phil, remarkable, uh, especially given uh, the cross currents we're getting on consumer spend overall. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Phil LeBeau covering Delta today in Atlanta. Still to come, EV players Tesla and Lucid are rallying in the pre-market. We're going to tell you why. It might come at the expense of another player. Take a look at the pre-market as well as we're going to get some more data today. Conference board, new homes, Richmond Fed, money supply. When we come back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Tesla has received a few downgrades lately, Barclays and Goldman, for example. But Baird today does reiterate its buy 
on the name, saying it continues to like it as a best pick for the year. Another EV name to watch is Lucid, rallying on the news that the Saudi Public Investment Fund has boosted its stake in the company, uh, David. But there's all kinds of uh, news flow regarding at least EVs and a lot of those who came public during the SPAC craze. Yeah, well, Lucid, of course, was one. Lordstown, which filed bankruptcy, we can talk about that a bit, also came public during that period, had as much as a $5 billion market value at one point. Take a look at shares of Lucid. They're up, as Carl just told you, the uh, PIF uh, buying a bit more. But r- the move was really yesterday when they announced that sort of battery systems um, and powertrain partnership with Aston Martin. Uh, that definitely helped. Uh, the stock significantly. But of course, it's almost half of what it was when it just came public as a SPAC. Remember, it was CCIV 4 originally, Churchill 4, and then obviously became Lucid Mike. Um, And Lordstown, that that GM plant that they had hoped to revitalize, didn't work out quite the way they'd hoped. They had that partnership as well with Han High Precision. Uh, which uh, has gone bad. It's gotten contentious, yeah. Um, and, you know, when all of this was happening, the new issues and the new, the new kind of startups in this area, almost everybody harkened back to, well, you know, in the 1920s, there were 100 automakers, and they kind of failed and consolidated up into what we had uh, today. And it is sort of amazing when you're now looking at Tesla at an $800 billion market cap, and everything else is almost a rounding error around that. Um, you know, so obviously there's a lot more inside of Tesla in terms of hope and expectation and imagination full self, full of what it could be. But it's it is fascinating and what that will mean and so many other things. But you're right. Listen, the um, well, there's the there's Baird on the on why they think uh, Tesla is a good pick um, in terms of gross margins. But Musk has made the point that you know there's a period of time where you just literally an auto plant is like a furnace. That's yeah, what he yeah, said. Exactly in terms of burning money. And right now we're also looking at Rivian, uh, which yeah. has had a rough, you know, not particularly. Uh, the question becomes both on the demand side and just how much money you're going to have to burn before you can hope to get to free cash flow. Right. And get the price down to where you can have right. scale in terms of demand. And that arguably is where Tesla's got the big head start. You know, I mean, yeah, people are worried about price competition, but Tesla vehicles are now pretty competitive on a cost basis, and I think that's that's why the market reflects it. Also, so so hard for a GM or Ford or legacy anything to get full credit for what they're doing in the new big secular growth area uh, from the market. In other words, to, to get a, you can't put a Tesla-ish valuation from whatever stage of its development on what Ford and GM are doing in EVs. The market just won't do. Now, for five minutes, it did it for Disney Plus in Disney, but that's a little <laughs> right. bit of a different story. Like as if these players don't yeah. have legacy businesses to keep yeah. alive. Um, And for all the chatter about China losing share as a global exporter or manufacturer of goods, uh, Mary Barra did talk at the Aspen Ideas uh, Summit this morning with Sorkin about uh, the competitive threat that they are posing to the world. Take a listen. In China, we do have a strong business. We've seen uh, some share loss as there's more than 100 domestic Chinese EV competitors right now. The industry's at 50% capacity utilization. Something's going to have to sort uh, because I think there's less than a handful that are profitable right now. So there's a lot of change that's happening in the Chinese market. But we do have strong brands, and we're now launching, I think, uh, EVs that are right for the market. We should mention NBC Universal News Group is the media partner of the Aspen Ideas Festival. That's that's where it's getting interesting. Is yeah. to what degree can they make inroads in 
uh, more developed markets, for example, Norway has been one that's gotten some attention. Right, exactly. In markets where there's a huge predilection to buy EVs, there's domestic or European uh, competition already, and uh, yeah, and, and see how it can how it can fly. U.S. automakers have gotten, you know, for many years it was, you know, you, you kind of make a car, push it through the dealer channel, you know, finance the heck out of it. You know, people will buy as much car as they can finance. You know, it just seems like a different equation right now in terms of getting the actual price point down, using the subsidies and, and the rest of it. Getting control of that Norwegian market would be key. <laughs> what do they got? Six million people? Uh, what's the share of EVs, right? Isn't what's it sixty percent? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe if you count the electric bicycles, it's, it's all, very it's large. More, Although, yeah. of course, all their money and their enormous their enormous fund has come from the North Sea and the uh, it's fascinating. oil. Yeah. Um, and then that amazing ability to field a Winter Olympics team consistently and win medals. Amazing. Those, yeah. those Norwegians. It's a lot of ski time. Yes, <laughs> no doubt. They're getting, they're getting in the boots. Uh, still to come, uh, two downgrades in two days for Alphabet. Today it's Bernstein. We'll break down what uh, they're saying about uh, Alphabet shares. Take a look at the pre-market as we await some more data later on this morning. Squawk on the streets back after a break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Busy week for the IPO market. Six companies are set to make their debuts, four of which are expected to raise more than $100 million. I was thinking back to Goldman a couple of weeks ago, Mike, that has this issuance barometer, yeah. uh, went to 200 during the craze, fell down to seven, now back to 93. Yeah, it's kind of back up to where you, you should start seeing the deals get cranked out. And it makes sense just where the market's been and how long you've gone without having a pretty active uh, pipeline. It's still kind of sort of one-off deals. There's not very many themes, I don't think, to what's, uh, what's happening now, except stuff that's been stacked up uh, on the runway, so to speak. The one thing I'll mention is for anybody who thinks that this is a AI bubble already or in the making, it's weird to have a bubble without a lot of deals. Like eventually, if it's going to be worthy of the, of the label, you're probably going to get some, some AI geared names, good and bad, and we'll see if that, see if the market holds together long enough for that to, to actually happen. Right. That could be a little while still. Yeah, you would think. Yeah. Uh, it was very targeted Or you'll have software are- companies that have been, you know, Growing for a few years, and they're going to and rebrand they, right, exactly. as AI. They, yeah. they, they pivot to some extent. Right? Exactly. And VCs um, have already said Meanwhile, that though, that. I mean, are we relying on the success of the Kava IPO as sort of having laid the groundwork for these kinds of I don't know if I would deals? extrapolate no, on, I, I didn't want to. I got no. an argument with Kramer about it, but he's going to yeah. claim he was right because... Well, stuff is coming. The I mean, IPO window at least is open a little bit. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I do think in that sense that, you know, you've got clients who are willing to take the next one because the prior one worked. No doubt about that. Just in terms of that business, you know, there's always a consumer concept. I know. That's it's reached like its point. Fast where casual it's about Mediterranean, to break you know, yeah. it's not going to, wouldn't, you wouldn't think would yeah. open up the market right. for deep software technology, right. you know, hey, IPOs. In the, I, I've always said this, in the early 90s, you talked about Boston Chicken as the best ever IPO. And then Netscape was a few years later. It's the only thing we had to compare it to. I remember the Boston Chicken yeah, another IPO. Another one that McDonald's 
Whipped on. Let, let yeah. go. That's yeah, right. I did, I did a stand up for this network on the Boston Chicken <laughs> IPO. There you oh go. Oh my God. 1993 or 94, somewhere in there. Yeah. Delicious. Let's get the opening bell on the CNBC Real Time Exchange. The big board is utility company Sempra, celebrating its 25th listing anniversary at the NASDAQ. It is IT consulting company Cognizant, also celebrating 25 years. Mike mentions AI. And this Snowflake partnership with NVIDIA uh, getting some attention uh, announced at the company's at Snowflake Summit on Monday. Oh, 4% pre-market. Yeah, um, hard to know, you know, if this says much more than there's, there's this obvious kind of land grab for, for data to train the AI systems. Don't pretend to know exactly what goes into this type of a partnership, except you just say there's a partnership and they have something with... Uh, Microsoft and NVIDIA at the same time and just sort of opening up. And it feels like we're at that time of kind of undisciplined exploration and investment in this area just to get up to a point where you can say that you have very active projects and you're going to you know, run full speed to try and make it a product. So that's where we are. Um, you know, Snowflake has very up and down story. People love the, love the product. The stock is, uh, has often not necessarily uh, you know, been valued. Uh, all that, uh, all that attractively, but uh, you know, it's had a, it's had a decent year already, and uh, and Nvidia, you know, is kind of the ever-present uh, player in all this. And uh, as I said yesterday, I think we were down uh, what six percent in the stock, so bouncing uh, off that high perch, right? Yeah, now. I wonder what you made of some of the. Oh, here's the, the quote from Jensen, basically talking about the difference between the old days yeah. and how you manage data, and just the. The size of the data flow now is so large that, in his words, you have to move to compute to the data. The size is so large, and I guess the way they would portray it is it's actually the raw material for what you're building next. Um, so that's where the value has migrated. Um, you know, again, not going to pretend to know exactly all about this stuff, but it does seem as if, you know, that's the, that's the front line the of figuring out what's real. Compute comes to the data, so to speak, as opposed to the, as he just said. Yeah. Um, and you know, AI is seen as an accelerant to those core data platforms. Snow, Snow is more neutral in terms of what it does, um, but it is one of the largest data warehouses on Amazon, fastest growing on Microsoft, relying on some help here from some friends who looked at this much more closely than I have, Mike. But yeah. you know, as we all try to understand the use cases for generative AI, and how th these businesses are going to deploy it beyond the ones that we are aware of and that are right fairly easy to understand, namely Microsoft or Alphabet right. or Amazon or obviously NVIDIA. And the way the market has treated it to this point is really, we don't know to what degree all these investments are going to provide great returns longer term. We don't know who's going to win or lose. What we know right now is everyone's spending a lot more money than they otherwise would have in this area. And there are people who are selling it to them, and, right. you know, and that's that's but essentially I guess you've on. got, you know, you've got an enormous amount of data that's generated from your customer slash right. client base. You want to understand it. You want to be able to interact yep. with it in an immediate way. And if you can do it through a chat GPT kind of format, right, right, you can get answers very quickly and obviously enhance productivity yeah, and train um, the next iteration. Right. Of it. And yeah. then it gets better and better. Sure. Yeah. Uh, meantime, the, 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 there's the question, though, of you move too slow too fast. That's yeah. the thesis behind Bernstein's downgrade of Alphabet, where it stocks up 40% from the November lows. But they actually say from too slow to too fast right. in AI. And that aggressive push, in Bernstein's view, uh, could create what they're calling a near-term air pocket in uh, search ad pricing. Yes. Uh, so Bernstein could be concerned about that idea that there will be this little 
kind of slippage in uh, in ad pricing, and also that maybe they're going to sacrifice margins in the short term because they're going to uh, kind of show that they're investing so heavily in that area, admitting that they could be you know a little bit off base if there's more flexibility on the cost line than they're uh, anticipating right now. They also do point out though things like you know YouTube is pressured to some degree by just the massive inventory now of ad-supported uh, video. And, uh, you know, other parts of the market that seem like they're getting squeezed, you know, Amazon search and, and all the rest of it that are hollowing out, as they say, the, uh, the core search business. Uh, meanwhile, uh, speaking of uh, advertising meta today, City, New Street High, uh, target of 360. Uh, they project 2024 20, advertising revenue growth of 14. Um, they specifically point out the monetization trend in reels. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I know Mahaney was at 350. Uh, here's City uh, besting him by 10 bucks. Yeah, and um, 320-ish, or really the 320 to 350 area is where the stock completely fell off a cliff. So everyone is, is kind of, I think, steering their valuation uh, models and targets toward that area. Of course, the, uh, the all-time high was a bit higher than that. Um, uh, you know, toward 400. So uh, it's, now, it's no longer the case that you could say, well, it's cheap. It's more about the fundamental momentum, the clarity on margins, and discipline on, uh, on CapEx. That story's been working for a while. And it is a good reminder that with Meta and Netflix, they're still coming back from deep holes in terms of stock performance. You know, it's not like NVIDIA where they're just kind of carving out new highs. So it's still this funny mode in the NASDAQ where you have some stuff that's just kind of gone off to the races and others where it's still in repair mode from what happened in 2022. Yeah. Well, Meta's getting close, though, Mike. Yeah, it is. No, it's it's right it's up to that bump. To yeah. Well, but that's you're looking at a 52-week high probably. Yeah. No, I'm looking there. Right oh, yeah. There, so right? 382 yeah. Yeah. is the Oh, is the it's high. that high. Oh, man. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I look much closer to yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't look a hundred points away from the. Yeah, well, at that yet. angle, it's going to yeah, get there angle, before sorry. too long, I think. Uh, absolutely. Relying on, uh, um, but yeah, I'm looking at the same. Uh, listen, let's not forget the monster that TikTok is. Um, sure. And we don't talk as much about it being banned in the U.S. I'm not quite sure what's happened. That effort is still out there as a possibility. Um, and again, it's part of ByteDance, but TikTok is just, a, I mean, a billion users. It's a, it's a monster. Um, if it had a market value, it would probably be above any of the major media companies, including Almost Disney. Almost certainly, yeah. You, or Netflix. Probably so, right? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly possible. Again, you'd have to see the actual probability uh, broken out, and then you'd also want to understand you'd still have to be discounting the possibility of a ban, which, right. which is why you're not going to see it. Well, you may see it have to go public or be separated in right. some fashion. I mean, there isn't a $200 billion dollar media company, really. No. I mean, no. so uh, you're right. I mean, Netflix is not pure media. Billion now. Yeah. Comcast is 170. So, um, by the way, uh, B of A, uh, Jessica Reef early today, uh, reiterating Disney by 135. Uh, we remain confident they have the proper mix of IP content, brand value, park expansion opportunities. We believe Bob Iger's deep industry relationships will steer the company in the right direction. As she trimmed numbers, though, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Trimmed uh, estimates a little bit on uh, on top and bottom line ahead of the report. So yeah, um, the strategic pivot and focus for the company is going to be key. We know obviously Parks has fueled um, the the cash flow and earnings at the company for some time. And again, the question becomes: linear cable networks, sports rights, ESPN. How do you position it in terms of its future? 
uh, and then uh, direct to consumer and Disney Plus and how do you staunch the losses there and or finally get to get to free cash flow positive there as well. So there's a lot of questions continuing for Disney. Um, not to mention they're going to have to find a new CEO. Uh, right. You know, I mean, you're talking. Clock's ticking, yeah. Yeah, the clock is already ticking in terms of if you want somebody to be anointed with some period of time prior to Mr. Iger's departure at the end of next year. Right. Meantime, shorter term, uh, box office is limping to the finish, in the words of Roth, uh, yesterday uh, in Q2 after The Flash and Elemental uh, disappointed. Uh, so there's something going on in, yeah. in box office and a lot's on the line with uh, Mission Impossible coming in the next week or two and Indy Oppenheimer and yeah. Barbie, yeah. same weekend. Uh, we'll see what that does. Yeah, there's even some talk about um, the box office handicapping of, of how these films are going to perform, especially with the franchises, the superhero franchises. They keep underperforming the, the estimates of what the box office, how they're going to open. And I think that because those things are just measuring awareness. You know, yep, I know there's another one coming and doesn't really measure intent to go. So we'll see if that's a, a longer lasting thing. I mean, it feels like they've got at least enough releases coming that it's, a, again, a, a viable part of the business. I think I saw AMC. I mean, not that, you know, it should trade on week to week box office, but I think it's down to four bucks again, the stock. Uh, I hadn't actually noticed that. I got a few on my list, Carl. I'm going to go see. Got to see Wes Anderson, my sure. favorite. Oh, Absolutely. yeah. Asteroid City. Asteroid City. Sure. Yeah, see the Oppenheimer up. movie, right? This <laughs> Absolutely. That's ours. Got to see Tom Cruise in the movie theater. Yes. Come on. He does sure. all his own stunts. Yes, he sure. does. Even at 78. I, I, 78. Or, yeah, he's 78 <laughs> now. I don't, did you know that? I've always <laughs> wondered how, does he get insured? I mean, for all that stuff, can you get yeah. insure the production? It's a very good the question. Price I'm sure right. you do. It's a matter of what the cost is. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. I mean, a stunt for me now is getting out of bed without, like, pulling <laughs> yes. something. How does he do that? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's something beyond Love stretching. Tom. Love time. Um, all right. In, oh, sorry. You got, yeah, uh, I was. You know what? I'm going to hit Microsoft uh, yeah. Activision, guys. Not not much to update on. Trial begins again. Remember, yesterday was a day off. Uh, we are back in. Um, just to tell you exactly the venue, uh, United States District Court for the Northern District of California in San Francisco. Judge Corley. We'll see who um, who uh, shows up today. Obviously, we're still expecting to hear from Nadella. Uh, at Microsoft from Bobby Kotick at Activision. But the key here is sort of how much time the FTC really has to present their case. You're going to have as well um, oral arguments on, on one day. So, you know, the question still becomes FTC making that case uh, and how they go about doing it with three days left uh, in the trial. You can see Activision, you know, again, 95 bucks a share in cash. July 18th is when the merger agreement would have to be extended. The CMA in the UK remains a key stumbling block in Microsoft's ability to overcome their objection through the appeals process and whether that will work still remains a stubborn fact, so to speak, even if they do prevail against the FTC. But as we've said many times, the FTC trial is important not just for the success of, of Microsoft's efforts to complete this deal, but even more so, Mike, in some way, because if the FTC does lose and fails to get a preliminary injunction, right. it may chill their ability, perhaps, to file further lawsuits in right. other cases. And, yeah. and, and uh, they have had a significant chilling effect on the deal market in terms of their exactly. opposition to deals that were not anticipated. Yeah, their willingness to, you know, to some degree, roll the dice in court. 
Yes. Uh, whereas before, you know, it seemed like there was a little more reluctance to do that. Um, so yeah, very interesting. Also, did we see? Did we talk about uh, the court filing? Oh no, I was going to say Nadella talking about five hundred billion That's, in revenue. Yeah. yeah, yeah, in the filing. Oh, in the filing, right? Ten percent plus yeah. revenue growth through twenty thirty would double their size. Yes. In the next seven years. Yeah, half a trillion in uh, in sales by twenty thirty. Ten um, percent growing on that base is is pretty impressive. It's uh, it wouldn't be. I think too different from what you've seen recently, especially when there's some tuck-in acquisitions along the way. Although it's, um, you know, I guess what, uh, Walmart's above 600 billion revenues now. Um, Apple is almost 400, uh, yep. and Exxon got to 400 last year. Okay. So you know, that's just to scale things in terms of where that would place Microsoft uh, in, um, in several years. Guys, real quick on the antitrust front, I forgot to mention as well the other key thing we're, uh, I'm tracking, of course, is uh, Amgen Horizon. It's one of the larger deals of the year. The FTC also opposing it, both uh, in federal court but also through an ALJ process. They, uh, when they filed their ALJ, they failed to lock it. I know this sounds, they failed to actually, in other words, they redact things, but they failed to lock the document, Mike. And so people were able to download it, put it back into Adobe somehow and see all the redactions. Oh, wow. Not a good move on the FTC's part. Uh, that's just housekeeping. I guess they got a lot going on and somebody failed to do something. But what it allowed for was uh, people who were following this closely to say, well, what was redacted? And was there a smoking gun there that the FTC had? Apparently not. I guess not. Apparently yeah. not, uh, because everybody's looked through it now, looked at various. There was also some estimates from Amgen in terms of the horizon drugs that may now be higher than had been anticipated. But the main thing was, was there a smoking gun? No. And perhaps it points to a very much, again, what we were talking about, uh, overworked FTC staff hmm. failing, to, yeah, right. failing to just do something they should have done. One other time, apparently, this has occurred where, again, a document was not locked and you were able to unredact everything. Yeah, the same week as we got the depositors for SVB by mistake, right? That was a document that yes, was released right. uh, unintentionally, too. Uh, we're just going to mention the transports really quick because the airlines are moving on, uh, you know, Ed Bastian, as Phil was telling us, uh, Delta up a percent and a half, stuff like that. Uh, transports have now basically caught up there, even with the S&P 500 on a year to date. It's mostly about the airlines at this point. I would just say in terms of comparing it to pre-pandemic, yeah, the stock price is still lower. But if you look at all the debt and the issuance of equity, uh, market, the, the uh, enterprise value of Delta is just about the pre-pandemic highs. And the cash flow, even by the new guidance, is not there yet. So to me, it doesn't seem like the market's out of whack with what they're saying fundamentally and how big uh, the company is in terms of the capitalization after raising that debt and equity over the pandemic. Uh, uh, yeah, we should point out, uh, as we've mentioned at the top, durables came in above. Yeah, that's or, right. Core orders, pretty solid. Uh, most sectors are green, with the exception of, say, energy and healthcare. Let's get to Bob Pisani. Morning, Bob. Nice. Um, very impressive start to the day. Three to one, advancing the declining stocks. And tech is rebounding. Uh, just take a look here at the sector gainers, laggards here. Uh, tech had a Rough day yesterday. It sold off pretty hard going into the close, but most of the big names are bouncing back this morning. So tech's up. Some of the cyclical sectors are doing a little bit better. Consumer discretionary is also a bit stronger. Metals and mining, which I watch very carefully, there's a very good uh, indicator of sort of global demand overall. Um, that's also doing better. And REITs are bouncing back. We had, a, of course, a mini rally yesterday in REITs uh, as SL Green announced the sale of a big uh, property in Park Avenue. That gave a little bit of a bounce, particularly to the commercial real estate. 
estate side of things. Uh, in terms of laggards, uh, once again, we're closing out the month with not a lot of energy from healthcare as well as consumer staples. Obviously, Walgreens is really what's weighing. Walgreens is at a new low in consumer staples, so maybe that's not a surprise. But not a lot of big energy from energy or from the banks here. So uh, very mixed overall uh, for the month. Remember, the S&P is up about 3% uh, for the month. In terms of the markets now, what's going on? Well, it's pretty simple. It's all about rates uh, again here. So here you see these big cap tech stocks uh, just bouncing back today uh, after most of them were uh, to the downside yesterday. So the good news is, overall, there's still no signs of a recession. The bad news is, Central banks are still tightening. So now we're back to this idea, well, they didn't cause a recession yet, but if they keep going, they're going to cause a recession. That seems to be the overall worry. And you can see this playing out uh, in Europe, for example. Christine Lagarde today saying higher for longer. We're going to keep rates higher for longer to combat inflation. There's the stock 600, which is the S&P 500 of Europe. And you see Europe was outperforming the U.S. until about a month ago. The S&P started rising on better growth prospects here uh, and uh, less chance for the Fed hiking rates. And you can see Europe's been flat to underperforming essentially for the last three months. That's a real disappointment because a lot of people thought this was the year for Europe to finally outperform. It hasn't turned out that way, at least in the last month. Same in China as well. The government there had to step in. The, the People's Bank of China had to step in to support the renminbi overnight because of the weak growth prospects. There's your white line, the S&P, and your orange line uh, is China. And you can see we have diverged. Again, China prospects uh, a lot lower, the growth prospects. Finally, just want to note uh, what's going on for the month as we close things out. Small growth in some of the cyclical names like metals and mining, industrials, consumer, discretionary. That's good. But Weakness in some other sectors as well, including some of the uh, discretionary groups uh, like uh, healthcare uh, and uh, technology, notably underperforming here. And yet overall, still, guys, up about 3%. And Mike, you're mentioning the equal weight RSP is outperforming just, just barely on the month. Carl, back to you. All right, Bob. We'll see you in a bit. Bob Pisani this morning. Uh, before we go to break, let's check uh, bonds today. As we said, we'll get some data. Uh, new, our new homes are coming. Conference board, Richmond Fed. Interesting discussion around the Fed this morning as well. Morgan Stanley a couple of weeks ago said the Fed was done. And now they're saying that the bar for a hike in July is lower uh, than we previously expected. Maybe another one coming. Ten-year, three-seven. Be right back. Tech has been on a tear to start this year. NASDAQ's on pace for its fourth positive month in a row. Our Dom Chu's taking a closer look this morning. Hey, Dom. And Carl, it has been the technology sector that's been driving the gains in the overall market, not just for the NASDAQ, as you point out, but the S&P 500 as well. Technology, the best performing sector on a year-to-date basis in the S&P 500 among all 11 of them, and consequentially the most important sector because it's 28% of the broader S&P. Now, the technology sector spider is one of the ETFs that a lot of investors and traders use to take a view on the sector. It's been a momentum juggernaut. As you can see here, I've put the 200-day moving average in the orange line down here. Year-to-date basis up 35%. But this gap between the 200-day moving average, its longer-term trend, and where it is right now, it's about 20% higher than where it is and has been over the course of the last 200 days on average on a rolling basis. By the way, the S&P 500 itself is closer to 10% above its 200-day moving average. Now, what's been powering it? It's been semiconductors. They've been volatile, both to the downside and to the upside. Two of the stocks in particular that are leading the tech sector higher in terms of momentum are NVIDIA. No surprise there. Artificial intelligence, a big part of that story. 181% year-to-date gain, but the gap above its 200-day moving average is roughly 80-some percent above its 200-day trend line. So that's a big move there. And then Broadcom is the other one. 
Check those shares out. Again, a huge move higher, but the gap between where it is right now and its longer-term trend line is over 40% at this stage. So one more to just kind of get you sorted out for the rest of the tech sector. Apple, that stock in particular, the biggest part of the weighting is now about 20%, Carl, above its 200-day moving average. So those stocks have been powering the gains. That's a sector perspective on what's happening with tech. I'll send things back over to you guys. All right. Thanks very much, Don. Uh, you know, there's some discussion, Mike, and about whether or not there's apprehension as Meta gets to 300, Apple gets to yeah. 3 trillion. What do you think? I don't know if there's, um, you know, a real reluctance to push the valuations that much higher. Now, Apple is obviously in its own category uh, toward that $3 trillion mark. But, I, you know, if you break down the numbers, yep, it's expensive based on its history, but it's been more expensive in, you know, three years ago or so in the summer of 2020. If you look, it's like a 4% free cash flow yield. That's not insane. So, you know, what are we talking about? We're talking about a company on massive scale that's, uh, you know, got the best balance sheet going, buys back its stock every day and, and, and has that valuation. So I do think in general, people are uncomfortable with how far these things have run. They're uncomfortable also with the idea that everyone in the bear market was saying, well, you know, last, last cycle's leaders never lead you out. And here we have these companies actually leading us, at least to this phase, getting back 60% of what was lost in the, uh, in, the, in the downturn last year. And so people don't know how to process that very well. Mike, thanks for joining. Always right, good to have tomorrow. you. Uh, Mike Santoli, a lot more from him, of course, all day long. Some breaking economic data at the top of the hour. And Charles Schwab's uh, chief strategist, Lizanne Saunders, will join us to react when we're back in two. You've been listening to The Opening Bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.